0: Welcome to Season 7 of Tell Me a Story I Don't Know, a fascinating journey into the lives of top sports personalities and their connections to Chicago. They reveal entertaining, memorable, and emotional stories many you've never heard before. I'm your host, George Hoffman, and please follow this podcast through our new partnership with Last Word on Sports. Just go to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or wherever you get your podcast. Tell Me a Story I Don't Know is proudly presented by Mr. Duct, Chicagoland's premier comprehensive air duct cleaning and ventilation for residential and commercial properties. They're upfront and honest. Find them on the web at MrDuctCleaning.com. This week we feature the man who managed the Chicago Cubs to their first World Series title in 108 years, Joe Madden.
1: I mean, I will defend the fact that we we should have been left together longer. Uh, there was more chicken on the bone there, absolutely. that uh, We didn't get to uh, eat or consume or cook up whatever you however you want to describe it um, it just ended way too quickly and I don't think it should have quite frankly so nothing went wrong Uh, you just don't win all the time other teams are good Uh, there's adjustments that needed to be made obviously but I got nothing to lament upon and I will defend uh, our players and how we did things it was was that good it's just a matter of the fact that you're you're not going to win it every year
0: The fact that Joe Madden accomplished what no one had since 1908 puts him in a class by himself. Then again, so does his effervescent personality. When he arrived in Chicago after revitalizing a moribund franchise in Tampa, Madden was greeted with great enthusiasm. It paid off, but the marriage lasted only five years. Since then, Madden managed the Angels, then wrote a book aptly titled The Book of Joe, Try Not to Suck in Baseball in Life. He loves wine and treasured Cousin Eddie. Not a relative, but something moving just the same. So, Joe Madden, tell me a story I don't know.
1: First of all, thank you for having me on, George. It's great to see your face again. And number two, there's a lot of those, (laughs) thank God, that people don't know about. Um, I'll tell you the one thing that um, I I don't even think I related this, but one of my favorite things ever, I was doing baseball clinics in Italy, and um, I went from uh, Venice to uh, Regensburg, Germany, via train by myself. And I'm going through that northern part of Italy, and uh, I had at that time one of those, one of the first iPods out, those little square, boxy kind of things, and uh, loaded with music, and had my Springsteen music on. And I'm going through the wine country of northern Italy, and I'm sitting in the uh, dining car all by myself, and order this uh, tray of charcuterie uh, meats, cheeses, and some wine. And I'm sitting there with my headset on, looking out the window, almost like a, you talk about surrealistic moments. And I'm sitting there. Uh, going through northern Italy, up through um, uh, into into Germany, uh, the, all the the beautiful mountainside there, and uh, listening to Springsteen on my iPod all by myself. And it was one of the, one of the most uh, interesting, exhilarating moments I've ever had in my life to have that um, all to myself actually, which is not a bad thing. I, I, like, uh, I like moments like that, but to get on that train um, doing baseball, going from Italy to Germany by myself, Northern Italy where my grandparents had come from, one of the best singular moments of my life.
0: So you're talking about being alone but what is it about you that you are so engaging and inviting to people? Because honestly, not many managers or coaches are like that. You appear to be a free spirit, but I'm not quite sure that's the right moniker.
1: A lot of everything that I am, I believe, is really rooted in where I came from. Uh, my parents uh, and uh, my teachers, my mentors, my coaches, <laughs> everything from Hazleton, PA, I really believe that uh, all the characters and the character you develop uh, from that hometown, you um, that you were always that you were social. You're always social, um, and again, it's it's kind of like antithetical to what's going on today, with everybody just communicating through devices and uh, text messages, and don't even use your phone for phone calls. I think at that time you were not not forced; it just the way you lived. You were uh, you were always in um, conversation with somebody else. You're always going somewhere to be with somebody else, and I think that all conspires to permit you to be able to communicate and. Uh, so, again, uh, without even realizing, you got to be grateful that you grew up in the era that you did uh, at the time that I did, too, in the 60s, late 60s, early and mid-70s. Uh, really an interesting moment in, in, uh, in life, I think. And uh, so i was very fortunate just to have it all occur at the right time and to grow up in a small town like I did with the values that were uh, bestowed upon me by the people around me. So I think it all all that stuff is, is why it turned out the way it did. Well, I grew up the same time you did. And here's what
0: I've always said about you, Joe. You're the modern day hippie.
1: I guess because um, I wasn't then. I, I wasn't then. I was just a, I was a jock, uh, and I, I think I'm, I know I'm still a jock, but I'm less of a jock maybe than I had been at that time. I, I just was totally uh, submerged in my in my uh, making a career out of baseball. All the hippie stuff going on at that time. Yeah, the music, the long hair, the way I dressed, uh, and I think the individual uh, method of thought. Uh, is another thing that I uh, ga- gained or gathered from that time. I was uh, uh, I was never into groupthink. Um, it had to be what I thought and why I thought it. Uh, yeah, I would listen to everybody. I was, I was very coachable, still am. But uh, at the end of the day, you have to make up your own mind, which you think is right or wrong for you. So uh, you know, I think that's all uh, uh, the residue residuals of, of hippydom. I mean that method of thinking. Uh, but t- in today's world, I, I think we we conform too easily. Everybody wants to be the same. Everybody wants to look the same. Everybody wants to sound the same. You want to look, drive cars that look the same. You want to, uh, the music all sounds the same. All that stuff, I think we're, we're just getting away from the individuality uh, that really was a big part of the 70s.
0: I think I'm going to use a term that you did. You're a different cat, Joe. And I think that that's why a lot of people respect you is that you are different. And because of that, you are refreshing as well.
1: Well, I appreciate that. I mean, and it's not intentional. It's just uh, just how you, like I said, you're, you're the product of your environment. Um, you grew up that way. But I would love to see more of that. I think, uh, you know, even in today's game of baseball, I think there's a, a kind of a, an, a push, uh, not not a realized push. It's it's kind of something that just has uh, morphed into it. That everybody's on on the same track all the time. Everybody wants the same things. They want the same players. They want the same methods. They want to analyze the game in the same way. And uh, individual organizations are just, uh, they don't have the same identity. And the people that are running them are, are again, uh, very, very similar, regardless of, of the situation or the team that you're with. Uh, I think uh, I want to believe that people want to see that individuality. I believe that they do want uh, differences within their groups that are identifiable. And I think uh, hopefully that's going to be, uh, it, it returns to that. I believe it will at some point, but uh, I just think it's a product of what's going on right now where um, everything Everybody wants everything the same, whereas back in the day you want it to be different.
0: Before we get into your book, which is a fascinating read, I want to take you back to Halloween 2014, when you were about to get dressed up in a new costume, a jersey with the Chicago Cubs written on it. That's when you were hired by Theo Epstein, and then introduced several days later at the Cubby Bear, it's of course a bar across the street from Wrigley Field. I was there, it was quite an experience to say the least. After nine years, Joe, in Tampa, where you had taken the Rays to the World Series, what was it like at age 58 to become the manager of this celebrated yet championship star franchise?
1: Well, it was, it was exhilarating. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, the fact <laughs> that Theo and Jed um, and the family wanted me to be there was quite a compliment. Um, I remember flying into the city at that point, uh, I, I, looking—we were landing at O'Hare, looking at all those houses— Uh, As you're flying over the top there and you're thinking, man, um, there's a lot of you, you're going (laughs) to weirdly attempting to influence a lot of people here because it's a pretty big city. And uh, but and and also weirdly, I felt very confident about it. I can't tell you why, uh, but I've always felt good about my methods and how I do things and uh, and uh, coming off a nice run with Tampa Bay. So you're landing in O'Hare, you're thinking all these things and you get there and Theo says we're going to have the press conference at the Cubby Bear, which I had no idea what the cubby bear was or where it was. And then you get there and I look out the windows, I'm sitting down at that table up front and I could see my name on the marquee. And I'm, I'm sure Theo had it uh, set up that way. Cause he's very, very good at details.
0: We're very fortunate to welcome uh, one of the very best managers in baseball. Uh, the person we believe will be our long-term manager and a real difference maker for us uh, with his leadership in the clubhouse and in the dugout. Mm-hmm. So without further ado, uh, it's my pleasure to introduce the manager of the Chicago Cubs, Joe Madden.
1: Wow. Uh, So you're sitting there, you're addressing everybody about what you believe in and how you're going to get this done. And you look out the window at the marquee, which is um, one of the most iconic in all of the world, actually, I think, and really a special moment for me. But I I did everything I said. I felt good about it. I feel that's the way you have to uh, approach a new situation in sports. Uh, you have to go in there with a specific plan and be able to uh, verbalize it. You have to make it believable. You have to have people literally buy into it. And I you know, pretty much believe that that occurred on that particular day. But it's nothing I was trying to sell. It's everything I believed in and uh, still do. So it was a really special moment. I like As you asked the question and I'm sitting here, I could absolutely visualize uh, what it looked like and what I felt like and looking at the audience and Jay sitting there and Tommy Tanzer. Agent Alan Nero sitting right in front of me. Um, all this stuff is very, very uh, recent in my mind's eye. And I was just i was very fortunate to get this opportunity. <laughs>
0: When's the last time you had your air ducts cleaned? Here's the best solution. Mr. Duct, a name Chicagoland has trusted for over 20 years. They work on your furnaces, air conditioners, and do repairs, maintenance, and installations. In other words, they're your all-around company for air quality choice and more. Mr. Duct provides on-site commercial ventilation cleaning estimates. You'd be hard-pressed to find better. So give them a call at 888-4-MISTER-DUCT. That's 888-467-3828. And Mr. Duct is the right choice to clean your residential dryer vents. They do a full inspection to make sure your dryers are running properly. Mr. Duct works with schools, health facilities, and office buildings to make sure you're breathing clean air. Their testimonials are endless and with good reason. So don't think twice when you're ready to work on air ducts, dry vents, and so much more. Just think Mr. Duct. 888 for mr. Duct. that's 8-467-3828. and find them on the web at mr.ductcleaning.com What was the Chicago experience away from the ballpark
1: The best I really love the place I still do always will um, Clearly it feels like a home for me um, you know I'm from Pennsylvania I've lived in a lot of places but when you go back there, um, it just, uh, well, wow, everything, it's like a big, warm, fuzzy. I, I could exist there again, very easily, uh, riding my bike up and down, um, Lake Shore there. And the part of it is I wasn't really golfing at that time. And, and now I'm a golfer and to be, be able to participate in all those wonderful courses back there, would be great. Uh, but the people, uh, every place I went, uh, was recognized easily and a lot of kind words. And, uh, uh, it just, it's just all of that for me. It's, uh, you know, there's there's places that uh, really are near and dear to my heart. Uh, of course, I always talk about Hazleton, uh, but Chicago's right up there, man.
0: You mentioned in your book, which, by the way, is a wonderful collaboration with Tom Verducci. You didn't want to manage a ready-made team, and there were times you weren't ready for personal reasons. The Cubs weren't ready-made, Joe, but certainly on the cusp, as was proven in your first year in the dugout. Did you get a sense that this was about to happen?
1: Well, um, you know, if you really look back at that, and people talk about ready-made, I'm so pleased with that first year because look at the roster during the course of that year and all the different people that came through. There's going to be a bunch of names in there that you didn't recognize. Um, And you have to understand it was the ascension of Chris Bryant and uh, eventually uh, Addison Russell and Starlin Castro willing to move to second base. Um, And a lot of other young players, Wilson Contreras eventually make it as Mark Covey Baez. Uh, think about it. And then there was Baxter, uh, one of the uh, extra guys that made a big impact for us and um, others. I mean, just it, it's really um, kind of interesting how that all came together uh, because in the beginning of the year, I remember in spring training, um, yeah, I was really uh, eager to get started there. And I loved all, you know, there's Ad, Anthony Rizzo and everybody else, wonderful guys, players, but there was still a lot of uh, question marks. And in spring training, uh, there was a lot going on I didn't like. I remember one day I got upset at the team uh, running some cutoffs and relay drills. And I just, I just thought it was too Cavalier. I I think it was at that point for me, uh, the group was kind of content with being uh, the Cubs playing in Chicago at Wrigley field. You're still going to get sold out regardless of how well you do or not do Um, it's iconic franchise, all the different things, lovable losers, all those things were connected in that spring training. And I didn't like that. And so we, uh, you know, we really pushed on it early. And we are playing, uh, I guess, right around 500 most of that year. When we made the switch with Starlin and, and Addison and uh, big series against the Giants in the latter part of the year, all of a sudden we became pertinent.
0: Another 3-2. Cold strike three. Hector Houdini gets through the ninth. Cubs win.
1: Cubs win. 2-0 the final. And they sweep them. So it was... Um, You know, a lot of people look back at that and think it was all set up. Uh, There was a lot of nice pieces coming to bear and in place. But uh, what we did uh, during the course of that year and really established our culture and our personality, uh, which I think carried us for the next several years, was all born of that spring training. And uh, the fact that these guys all bought in and then eventually a lot of great moves were made and guys got their feet on the ground and it became the 2016 Cubs.
0: And those 2016 Cubs finally broke through to win the World Series. I wondered what that was like for you as a manager. Here's the 0-1. This is going to be a tough play. the Cubs win the World Series. Bryant makes the play. It's over. And the Cubs have finally won it all. It's 7-10.
1: Exhausting. And, you know, you're flying back and... um you land. And, uh, of course there's all kinds of stuff going on. And, uh, the we way you're greeted at the airport, uh, you know, the ride back downtown and, uh, you know, people, <laughs> there was a, an option that we had. A lot of guys wanted to go out and stay out all night and have some breakfast and, and to continue the celebration that night, which I passed on because I had nothing left in the tank. Uh, but it's a real, uh, a feeling of great satisfaction. Um, like, like nothing you've ever, ever experienced before from a personal level, how I got to that particular point that you you think about those things, including your parents. My, my dad's note was no, no longer with us. My mom is and uh, everybody else, your aunts, uncles, uh, your family, your wife, your kids, everybody are included in that thought. That's just how I work. That's where, that's where I come from. So all those things are a part of your thought process. And you finally lay your head down on a pillow and then you wake up and it's like, wow, we actually did this. And knowing that the parade was going to ensue and, I really had no idea. Uh, I knew I mean, I knew we were gonna have a parade, but I had no idea it was gonna have that magnitude to it. I did. I really maybe I was being naive. I get a phone call, I don't know if it was the next morning or the morning after that, from President Obama, uh, because Michelle was such a a big Cub fan growing up. And, of course, the president, Frank, from Chicago, too, um, or having lived there. uh, It was really, again, and I have one of my T-shirts, May All Your Surrealisms Come True. Uh, That's the only way you can describe it, because it's it's beyond dreams. It's beyond dreams to be able to arrive at that particular point and uh, have all these wonderful things occur for you and your family. And uh, it's just, it's indescribable. I mean, you live it and then you reflect on it eventually, but I don't even know, I don't even know exactly when it all sinks in.
0: I was reporting from a helicopter. It was a heck of an experience, a massive amount of people all over the city and downtown. You were basking in the glow, but the Cubs never made it back to the World
1: Series. Joe, what went wrong? Nothing. It's not easy to get back to the World Series. That's the part that I I, get—I really find amusing um, because you win it. And if you look at the last last 20 years, nobody's really repeated. I know some teams have gone back. Most recently, Houston's done a great job of getting there. And, of course, the Giants did, um, too, during the last decade. But it's not easy to do that. Uh, We went to three consecutive NLCSs, which to me was fabulous, including one World Series the first in 108 years. And then we run into a tough year where we um, Milwaukee just played great at the end of the year, we had an extremely tough schedule.
0: Right field, playable. Roxton, game over, division over. The Brewers are champions of the Central.
1: And then 19, um, actually, uh, you know, we, we were hanging in there pretty well, and then last month, guys got banged up, and it didn't work. Two and two,
0: Kinsler deals. Swing and a miss. Got him, and it's over. And the Marlins are headed to the division series as they beat the Cubs two nothing. The final here, and they advance to the DS.
1: I mean, I will defend the fact that we we should have been left together longer. Um, there was more chicken on the bone there, absolutely, that uh, we didn't get to uh, eat or consume or cook up whatever you however you want to describe it um it just ended way too quickly and it, i don't think it should have quite frankly um so nothing went wrong uh, you just don't win all the time other teams are good uh, there's adjustments that needed to be made obviously um but nothing uh, i got nothing to lament upon and i will defend uh, our players and how we did things it was it was that good it's just a matter of the fact that you're you're not going to win it every year uh, but uh, we competed, I think, uh, the Cub fans look back at the, those four years or four out of those five years, one of the best runs in the history of the organization. And to be part of that is pretty special.
0: In your book, you discussed analytics, which you were a big advocate for. But as time went on, you felt as it was perhaps being overused by upper management and taking away from your ability to manage. The gut instinct, Joe, is being replaced by numbers.
1: Yeah. I mean, that's, that's, that's true. And it, and it still is going on. And, uh, and again, I, I try to make it clear in the book, I'm not opposed to any of that. And I'm, I'm absolutely into collaboration, but I'm not into is interference. Um, you know, when it comes down to right prior to the game uh, managers and coaches really need to be able to um, two things, be empowered and be able to do their jobs. Um, I, I'd like to see more separation between analytics and the actual game of baseball. Um, I'd like to see, like I said, coaches empowered again. It wow. gets to the point where coaches become gun shy. And even as a manager, you do too, because you're getting so much information. And oftentimes uh, it's not necessarily said in the way that you're being told what to do, but maybe suggested in a very strong way what to do. And it really clouds your method of thinking. And, and again, it, it's just, uh, it's, it's not the way it's supposed to be or should be, I don't think. Again, it should be separate departments. Analytics should serve the game and not the other way around. Um, and I want, I, getting an opportunity to do this again. I want absolutely the best of the best, but I want, I would like to see it lined up more where, uh, the analytical department and coaching staff, uh, are absolutely on the same page. And once the information is processed and given to the coaching staff, we're permitting the coaching staff and the manager to do their jobs and not make it a middle management kind of a situation. So that's, that's all I'm talking about. I just think it's when you have people in your office right before the game giving you information and making strong suggestions regarding what you should do, it just it just clouds it up. It makes it more difficult. And there are no absolutes. These are human beings playing a game, feeling experience and wisdom should still be uh, valued, whereas I don't think it is as much as it had been in the past, whereas inexperience and the more control, uh, the way people are looking at the game right now, uh, that's, that's what they're looking for. And I don't agree with that. I, I don't. Um, and I think that's part of why people have shied away from the game a little bit. It's not as interesting in a sense because uh, it is. It's, it's becoming this, this same thing regardless of what city you're in. And uh, um, I think that's detracting from the, the level of excitement and interest uh, just by the human element being diminished.
0: Well, the biggest sin in all of this is pitching, Joe. We grew up in an era when complete games were the norm. Now, a complete game is like a no-hitter. It's rare. And you make a point of that in your book regarding Jake Arrieta and how you allowed him to throw 120 pitches to get a complete game, and that really ticked off Theo Epstein.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, listen, I let, I let minor league iris do that when I was in uh, rookie balls. So I turned out, I mean, Tommy Perducci did great research, I guess, one time I let Bobby Kipper go up to 140 pitches in a rookie ball game. Yeah, that's, that's becoming a little bit uh, too out of control, out of hand um again this is all based on the third time through the batting order stuff and right now you're looking at teams uh attempting to they have to spend a lot of money to purchase aces you know really frontline pitchers because they're not developing their own because they're not permitting the pitchers to develop everything's controlled so much on the minor league level these young pitchers uh, are not learning how to pitch through difficulty pitch more deeply into the games, throw more pitches, build up arm strength, whatever it takes. Guys are going to get hurt regardless of you protect them or not. Uh, guys are going to get hurt. Um, of course I'd always would want to do things within parameters and reason, but, um, I'd like to see like almost the development of more aces, uh, knowingly, uh, going out there. And as you're developing in pitchers, really consciously attempting to develop starters that are ace potential guys that, uh, you would have to spend zillions of dollars on in the free agent market. Why don't you develop a system where you can develop these guys on your own in the minor leagues? It's going to require different methods that are employed right now. Again, these guys are horses with Verlander, Scherzer, as an example, Garrett Cole right now. Yeah. All these guys that you're paying a lot of dough for, these guys are different animals, and uh, they want the ball more deeply into the game. They want to throw as many pitches as is necessary, and this needs to be bred, I think, more on the minor league level. If in fact, you want to have these kind of guys show up at your doorstep um, three or four years after you draft them.
0: You know, this reminds me of something Bill Veck once told me when I was a Cub reporter back in 1978. We were discussing ownership, and he said, "Baseball owners are diametrically opposed to logic." I will never forget that.
1: Well, I and that's, but it's not even the owners. I mean, it's who's running the situation on the minor league level. I mean, that's that's really what it comes down to. It's a, it's groupthink because everybody's thinking the same thing right now. Uh, somebody might take a, a flyer on this and all of a sudden uh, attempt to uh, develop pitchers in a different way, more of an old school way combined with new. I mean, that's, I, I guess it's uh, it's the in-school method. I mean, it's not old, it's not new, it's being in school. And you have to utilize everything that's at your disposal and you just can't be heavy handed one way or the other. I'm all about that. But I, I think at some point, if you if a group decides that we're going to uh, use utilize a different method in the minor leagues, permit these guys to throw more innings, more pitches, in an attempt to develop them and not be so concerned all the time with being injured. And part of being injured all the time is the methods being employed where they're just trying to get these guys to throw as hard as they can and spin the ball to the top of the strike zone. That's just going to lead to issues and problems, as opposed to pitchability, i.e. Kyle Hendricks. He's been pretty good uh, for a long period of time. Uh, Maddox was pretty good for a long period of time. Um, Kershaw doesn't throw a 1,000 miles an hour. Kershaw has been pretty good. For a long period of time, there's there's way Johnny Lester, a big Johnny Lester guy, um, all these guys and even Jake. Jake was what? 92, 93, 94, and uh, sometimes 95. But Jake had tremendous spin on the ball. And great movement. And Arrieta gets the punch out. Got him, throws it. And Arietta able to get him one, two, three, his third strikeout. Different ways to getting this done, but it has to be nurtured on a minor league level if in fact you want to realize the fruits on the major league level.
0: If you want to hear more guests on Tell Me a Story I Don't Know, all you have to do is go to Last Word on Sports on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the many wonderful interviews we've done dating back to January of 2021. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low,
1: net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands, and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co.
0: Your tenure here ended rather unceremoniously when you were not offered a new contract by Theo Epstein, who's mentioned in your book the Book of Joe, that had to be demoralizing, if nothing else. Uh, I think we're at a point where um, we just need a little bit of change and some uh, something new, and, and and
1: that's natural. That's the natural way of things. Change, if you embrace it the right way, is uh, good for all of us. Well, it, it, it was shocking, because <laughs> um, uh, I'm sitting in the house right now in California where this all occurred when Perry came to visit me. I didn't expect it to happen. I really didn't. Um, I really thought it was about him coming here to tell me he's going to let coaches go, but quite frankly, I was relieved that it wasn't them and it was me. Uh, it was, it was, it was shocking. I didn't expect it at all. Not even for a second. Um, we had gotten off to the best start we had in years here and then we had a tough stretch, which happens. And then all of a sudden, uh, the, the rug gets uh, yanked. So, uh, it, it, it was different. I didn't expect it, uh, but it happens in the game. And actually it's good when it happens to you sometimes cause it's, uh, you need, to, you need to understand what that feels like. You need to understand how do you get through this. You need to understand how do you come back from it. All those things are, are part of the growth process. Uh, I will be 69, and 69 is now the new 49 that will happen. And uh, by no means am I through with anything. I'm just enjoying this, this moment right now, and we'll see what comes along down the pike in the near future, hopefully. But in the meantime, um, again, it's, it's good to go through different life experiences. It's good to feel what others have felt. Uh, in, in, in moments that things aren't working in your favor and they don't go your way, that's, there's nothing wrong with that. I've had it happen a lot, um, you know, prior to becoming uh, an actually professional baseball player being passed over in the draft, signing for nothing, eventually starting as a 27 year old minor league manager uh, working your way to the big leagues. There's a lot of, there's, there's a ton of failure. And that's a big part of the book of Joe is the struggle and how important the struggle is. It's just another level of that. And uh, while I'm enjoying what I'm doing right now, I'm still uh, uh, internally evaluating because I know things happen for a reason. And a lot of good's going to be uh, come out the other side of all this.
0: What I also like about the book, Joe, including wonderful stories about managers and players and some who didn't make it, was a chapter about leadership. What is the leadership to you?
1: Yeah, I mean, I appreciate it. I mean, uh, that was the whole thing. Uh, We didn't want it just to be a generic book on baseball. Uh, wanted it to uh, exceed all that. So did Tom Verducci uh, and I when we first began putting this together. We conceptually, it was about comparing and contrasting managing in the 80s to present day, as as uh, well as the magnetisms that you're seeing littered throughout the book uh, and the leadership components that are involved in it. We've had some great feedback about that to the point where. Uh, one fellow down in uh, Princeton, New Jersey, where Tommy lives, um, suggested that the book should be required reading in MBA programs. Um, that's like, wow, uh, that's a pretty substantial thought right there. So, yeah, there's a, there's a lot of leadership principles they're even right down to try not to suck, embracing the target, aiming high. Don't permit the pressure to exceed the pleasure. Uh, I could go on and on, see with first-time eyes, feel the first-time passion. All these things, I think, uh, blend or lead to, um, if you're in charge of any group, Um, just by reading these uh, chapter titles and then maybe just delving into it a little bit, you're going to derive something from it. That's going to create a thought within you that I think is going to help you in your, in whatever it is that you do, whether you're a teacher, uh, whether you are a coach, whether you're a parent, uh, whatever you may be doing, I think it will spur thought. And that's the whole thing about leadership. If uh, I can't teach you anything, but if I could help make you think I've done my job.
0: When you wrote this book, I wonder if it crossed your mind, it might prevent you from ever being hired as a manager again.
1: Uh, Of course it did. But that was, um, uh, there's no reason to, uh, you know, interview deceptively or put out a a false method regarding what you think and how you think. Uh, My intent was that if you are very uh, transparent about what you think and how you are thinking, that might actually become more attractive, hopefully. And that's, that's the only place I would want to work anyway. So uh, it would probably, I thought it could preclude. Uh, but, but also, like I said, um, the way the game trends and goes back and forth eventually, maybe what I'm saying right now would become more attractive in the near future. I don't know that. Uh, but I was prepared to uh, face the circumstances either way. But you're going to get from me exactly what I felt and I thought because uh, this is who I am. This is how I think. This is how I feel. And um, if you want me to work with your group, These are the kind of thoughts that I think are going to help get you to to the last game of the the baseball season and win it.
0: I assume you'd like to manage again, but if not, then what?
1: I would like to manage again, but also uh, a front office work is very interesting to me too. I've done pretty much everything there is in the game. I actually had been a farm director briefly at one time. I've been a roving instructor. I've been a minor league manager. I've been an area scout. I've been a hitting coach. I've been a base running coach. I've been a catching coach. Um, first base coach, third base coach, manager, bullpen coach. Um, you know, I've seen the game from all different angles and uh, I haven't forgotten any of it. And I've had great mentors and teachers throughout my life and career. So um, yeah, there's, uh, I, I know I have a lot to offer. And uh, it just, again, it would have to be the right marriage. I think that's always important to anybody. And uh, so when that opportunity arises again, which I believe it will, Um, there's a lot that I could bring to the table and, uh, I'm very strong in what I believe in how I, and I, uh, purvey it.
0: What was the best part of writing this book?
1: Um, the best part was, uh, as Tom, of Verducci and David Black, our agent and, uh, Sean Desmond, the publisher constantly, uh, compelling me to dig down more deeply on a daily basis. I would send in audio tapes of, uh, up to an hour of like a hundred hours of tape and they would listen to it. They'd come back to me and kept asking me to dig down more deeply, which what it does eventually internally really um, galvanizes what you think and how you think it. It clarifies your thoughts. It, it brings back things to the forefront that you hadn't thought maybe in a while. And um, it just validates with everything that you had done. So it's a very interesting process. Um, there's a lot of, there's a lot of content. There's a lot of stuff that we, the, uh, audio taped and, and talked about that aren't included in the book. And we were over four hundred pages. And then Sean asked us to uh, bring it back down just because he, you know, he thought that might be too too thick, a little bit too much for people to consume. So uh, it, it was it was very involved and deep. And like I said, these guys really kept drawing it out. I mean to me, um, that's that was probably the most interesting part of all this.
0: I'd like to go back to wine, which I love and apparently you do too. I always remember some of the post-games at Wrigley Field when you would be swirling a glass of red wine. You really do love it.
1: Well, red wine is good. You read so much about how healthy it is, but uh, but on top of that, it's just good. Uh, I mean, I'm into sipping it again. Uh, I've got a nice array. I brought. We just drove over from Arizona to Long Beach and I brought several bottles with me. It's a great way to finish off your day. I'm talking like maybe a glass, uh, some really good stuff. And uh, the, the line that life is too short to drink a uh, cheaper bad wine is absolutely correct, um, but you don't have to spend a lot of money either. Just find what you like, uh, whatever your palate loves or appeals to you. Um, uh, the thing about wine, to me, it's just it's like I've told my my uh, partner in our restaurant in uh, in uh, Florida, Michael Stewart. I said uh, the really great wines, the moment you sip them, they become a part of you. And I think that's that's how I feel. I, I it's weirdly when you when you sip on a wine that you really dig. Um, It just absorbs into you, and it just—it's very satisfying immediately. So uh, a really great wine. The moment you drink it, becomes a part of you.
0: Cousin Eddie was your beloved RV. I mean, you guys drove it around a long time, and now it's gone. What happened?
1: Yeah, cousin Eddie—he's gone. He's gone. Yeah, he had—he had to go for now. But hopefully, another iteration will show up in the near future. we're just moving around too much, man. There's no place to park. So, uh, uh, yeah, uh, uh, cousin Eddie, I think it would be for the fourth iteration when we when we return to the roads. But for right now, we had to, we had to give him up. Um, but I tell you what, I love it. I miss driving that bus to drive uh, cousin Eddie across the desert. You sit up there on top. The ride is so good. If uh, you got to go to the bathroom, you just got to pull over very quick and just go to the bathroom. You walk to the back. If you need a snack, it's right there. Um, if you want to, if you want to park next to this to the ocean, uh, just drive your nose up to uh, different uh, RV resorts throughout the country, and it's you're you're right there. Uh, there's so much freedom and flexibility to it. I do miss that. So eventually, we'll get back to it.
0: When this podcast drops, we will both be. 69 I've got you by a couple of months you said 69 will be the
1: new 49 so what will 70 be Joe uh 70 be the new 50 yeah I, I it's uh when I when I did my first uh press conference with the Rays in uh, 2005 I did mention to them at that time uh 51 is the new 31 and uh you know yeah. it, it's a it's a you just subtract 20 it's an easy. It's an easy equation. It's pretty accurate, I think. Um, listen, I've been I during the summer I was in Pennsylvania. I played golf. I'm uh, into mean, my new thing. Uh, out of 140 days I was there, I think it was 140 or so. I played 130 days of golf. Great way to stay in shape mentally and physically. I uh, got my boys out in Southern California. I'll be playing with them. again. I'm still riding my bike. I try to watch my diet. I try to exercise. I get I'm getting great sleep. My God, I thought I was a good sleeper. I've turned into an Olympian. It's been uh, all good stuff. Uh, it's like I said, it's an internal thing. You gotta, you gotta get in there and search it a little bit, but you gotta remain true to yourself. We all do, and when you do, I think that's the that's going to always be your best version of yourself, and that's the one that's going to appeal most to people outside.
0: I ask this final question to all my guests, Joe. If not for baseball, what would you have been?
1: Yeah, that's that's actually very easy. Um, I was recruited to go to Cornell also. To play football uh, and baseball when I went uh, to college, uh, and I eventually decided on Lafayette, which was a wonderful uh, decision on my part. But Cornell had this school of hotel and restaurant administration that I thought, "Wow, you mean to tell me I can go to school uh, for that?" Um, so that was really appealing. I got put on their waiting list, and uh, there was a lot going on at that time, a lot of different schools. So eventually, I just decided on Lafayette and did not want to wait on Cornell, but. Uh, the point is I would absolutely, I think I'd like to believe, uh, running a, a huge resort in either the Caribbean or the Mediterranean right now, something like that would be, uh, on the docket. Um, I'm a big fan of both of those bodies of water and everything that surrounds them. I love the Latin America. I love the people of Latin America. And of course, um, my, my grandparents on my dad's side are from Italy. And so, uh, I've always told my, like Mako Olivares, uh, who was a coach for the Cubs at one point, uh, Mako? There's a stream of water that I believe runs through, like this, 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 like uh, underwater jet stream from the Mediterranean to the Caribbean. Because we're, it's like we're brothers, man. I, I'm so uh, affiliated with the Hispanic community, and Latinos, um, and and how they're raised and what they believe in and how they are. So I think there's a strong affinity that comes from the Mediterranean to the Caribbean. So if I could have run a resort in either one of those spots, I'd have taken it.
0: This has been an absolute joy, Joe. It's been a while since we spoke. Uh, I would be remiss in not thanking a longtime associate and friend of yours, Rick Vaughn, for setting up this interview, and a mutual friend of both of ours, Dave Wills, for getting a big assist. It's been a real pleasure. You mean a lot to this city. You made my role as a reporter much more enjoyable and enriching. And thank you, Joe Madden, for
1: telling me a story I don't know. Thank you, buddy. Thank you for having me on. And I did throw in the one reference to Dave there when I did mention more chicken left on the bone. That's one of David's favorites.
0: (laughs) I'm sure he'll appreciate that. My thanks to ESPN, the Chicago Cubs, and NBC Sports Chicago for those wonderful highlights. And my thanks, as always, to the people behind the scenes that helped make this wonderful podcast possible. T.J. Reeves for putting us on the map, Will Hatzel for his crafty editing, Nick Tochi for our wonderful graphics, and to our new partner, Last Word on Sports, and to our presenting sponsor, Mr. Duct. You can find them at mrductcleaning.com. Tune in next week when we feature another intriguing guest on Tell Me a Story I Don't Know. I'm George Hoffman, and that's all she wrote.